nine twisted sorcerers, clad in dark robes, unelected to their position of power, conspire together to magically change the laws of the kingdom to benefit the ultra-wealthy. Just kidding, this is episode 6 of the Saving Green podcast, and today we're talking about the recent Supreme Court decision, Sackett v. EPA, where the Supreme Court essentially rewrote the Clean Water Act, putting millions of acres of wetlands and other protected waters at risk. The decision eliminates protection for 63% of all wetlands in the entire United States and puts several million miles of ephemeral streams at risk. The case is the result of a nearly 20-year legal battle between land developers and the EPA. Wetlands are crucial ecosystems for wildlife and plants, they naturally clean our water, they pull carbon from the atmosphere, they help prevent floods and shoreline erosion, and so protecting these ecosystems is paramount to protecting the environment in the United States. The EPA has officially updated its guidance to reflect the fact that 63% of the wetlands it used to be able to protect, it no longer can protect, and so now some states are scrambling to increase their protections for wetlands, but their resources are limited because many of these state projects rely on federal funding and or oversight. Some states are also scrambling to decrease wetland protections and increase the amount of development. This is still a developing story, but we're going to talk about what's happened so far and what the consequences are. Thank you so much for listening. If you're a longtime listener, you know at this point that I got to plug all the socials and all that junk. So follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Saving Green Pod. Check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please leave a five-star review on either of those. If you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, I will read that at the beginning of the show. Also check out our Patreon if you're a big fan of the show. Uh, I do not make any money from this really, so people giving to the Patreon is my only source of income based on this, and I'd really like to keep this program going and keep making it better, and giving to the Patreon really helps that. You also get exclusive benefits like early access to episodes, exclusive content, things like that, so definitely check that out. Everything that I just mentioned is also available on the Linktree, Linktree slash Saving Green Pod. Now, without further ado, let's talk about what actually happened. Sackett v. EPA is the culmination of a legal fight that has been going on for almost 20 years, and it started in 2004 when a couple, a wife and a husband, the Sacketts, were notified by the EPA that they could not fill in wetlands on their lot of private land, and that was because these wetlands were protected under the Clean Water Act. The Sackett's land is also located just 300 feet from Priest Lake, which is one of the largest lakes in the state of Idaho. And this is according to PBS's article. This is a big deal because the Sacketts polluting their own wetlands then means that pollution can spread to one of the largest water sources in Idaho, which can affect public water, recreational water, all sorts of things like that. The Sacketts sued the EPA, but the case was originally dismissed. After their case was dismissed, the Sacketts still filled the wetlands with gravel without obtaining the permit from the EPA. 
So in 2007, the EPA ordered the Sacketts to remove the gravel that they had dumped and restore the site. The Sacketts sued again and argued that their property was not actually on a wetland this time. Their case worked their way through the courts for five years until 2012 when it made it to the Supreme Court. Then, the Supreme Court held that the Sacketts did have the right to challenge the EPA order, or they did have legal standing, but the case was sent back to the lower courts. After that, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Appeals Court ruled that the Sacketts had to comply by EPA orders, and that the property does have wetlands under the jurisdiction of the EPA. This is all thanks to a timeline provided by OYES, which is a legal database with case breakdowns of different rulings across the country. They're supported by Cornell Law, Justia, and Chicago Kent College of Law. After the Sacketts lost their case in the U.S. Ninth Circuit, they then appealed to the Supreme Court again, saying that their property was not actually federally protected. You might be wondering, how can one couple afford 20 years worth of legal fees? And the answer is... They didn't have to. The Sacketts were represented pro bono by the Pacific Legal Foundation, which has a history of lobbying the federal government to decrease environmental protections and regulations in favor of developers. Their arguments are kind of the typical conservative common man red herring that the government is coming out to get you. And a senior attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation even said in a statement that it's a case that could happen to you, according to the Spokesman Review, which is an independent paper run out of Spokane, Washington. But like, yeah, man, I really am so worried that I won't be able to develop pristine ecosystems and destroy them so that I can make more money. You know, I have so much wealth and capital that this is definitely something I'm concerned about. I'm also definitely the kind of person who really just wants to put gravel in wetlands whenever I see them. I can't help myself. But the Pacific Legal Foundation have had their fingers in a number of cases throughout the years. Another big water case was Rapinos v. United States, which the Pacific Legal Foundation argued in. And this was another challenge to the Clean Water Act that was filed in 2006. Rapinos is an important ruling that we're going to talk about later, but for now, just know that this is something the Pacific Legal Foundation was involved in. They also were a part of Weyerhaeuser Company v. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which ended up eliminating protections for critical, critical habitat for endangered species. They were involved in the Cedar Point Nursery v. Hasid case, which tried to weaken labor rights for agricultural workers. So, you know, just overall a really upstanding company the Pacific Legal Foundation is. Definitely nothing nefarious going on there at all. The Sacketts themselves are definitely not upstanding citizens either, and part of the reason that this case even took so long is because Michael Sackett spent a little over a year in prison. Now, trigger warning for this upcoming section, there is a brief mention of sexual assault of minors. Michael Sackett was caught in a federal sting operation after he responded to fake advertisements put up by the Department of Homeland Security and he was trying to solicitate sex with a minor. Originally, he was arrested and faced between 51 to 71 months in prison with a charge of attempted sex trafficking of a minor. The judge ended up accepting Sackett's request for a lesser sentence because of, quote, his lack of criminal history and long record of employment. This is after he had criminally 
broken the Clean Water Act, degraded wetlands, but just because the case is caught up in court, he's getting away with it. And employment is definitely not a measure of someone's merit or potential to hurt people. Sackett ended up being sentenced to 13 months for the charge of attempting to coerce a minor into performing sexual activity. That's about four times less than the original sentence that he faced, and it's crazy to see the amount of privilege this old white male landowner gets to enjoy with this shortened sentence and then gets to continue to be represented for free by a major lobbying group just so he can make a profit dumping a bunch of trash in wetlands. If you think about it, it's probably pretty much exactly the way the Founding Fathers intended as old white landowning men that wrote the Constitution to benefit themselves. Yeah. So maybe maybe the Supreme Court justices really are practicing constitutional law. I don't know. Now, I think it's important that we actually define what a wetland is so that it's clear to everybody what I'm talking about and the kinds of things that they should be thinking about when I talk about wetlands. And the official definition from the EPA is, quote, wetlands are areas where water covers the soil or is present at or near the surface of the soil all year or for varying periods of time during the year, including during the growing season. Now, that's a very kind of bad definition, honestly, but that basically means that there are prolonged periods of moisture in these areas, and that's either in the soil or completely over the land itself, They're, like flooding the entire land. And this creates unique opportunities for life to flourish, especially plant life, and this creates wetland ecosystems. Wetlands generate an immense amount of value for us and the planet. They help us clean our water, they can remove excess nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus out of the water, you know, things that might be coming from fertilizer, manure, septic systems, municipal sewage, things like that. And this is according to the EPA. Some municipal water managers will even construct their own artificial wetlands to filter wastewater or stormwater. That's just how good wetlands are at cleaning water and filtering it. And this is a free service that they provide for us. We don't have to build massive, elaborate, multi-million dollar facilities to clean the water, but we can have wetlands do it for us too. This is particularly important in the modern era. There have been a number of disasters that have impacted water resources that I've even talked about recently, like the East Palestine disaster. And with the contamination of microplastics and PFAS chemicals being as rampant as it is today, making rainwater unsafe to drink and things like that, it's definitely important that we have these wetlands helping to provide clean water for us. Wetlands are also some of the most productive habitats on the entire planet, on the same level as rainforests or jungles. They can be safe havens for plants, birds, mammals, fish, reptiles, amphibians, insects, mollusks, and all sorts of other species. In 1991, an EPA survey found that 43% of threatened and endangered species depended on wetlands for their survival. Birds also thrive in wetlands. Up to one half of bird species nest or feed in wetlands, according to the EPA, and there is extremely high plant biodiversity. Wetlands are also great at preventing floods and preventing shoreline erosion. 
They can act as crucial buffers during storms to absorb floodwaters because of their ability to retain them with all the plants holding them in. An acre of wetlands can store up to 1.5 million gallons of flood water. Floods can be devastating at their worst, and with floods on the rise due to climate change, wetlands can be an important buffer to protect people, towns, people's homes, different types of property from being destroyed or lives being lost. Because of the massive amount of plant life in wetlands as well, they are very great at capturing CO2 out of the air, which is also important in the age of climate change, where CO2 is causing global warming. And this also means that destroying wetlands reduces this capacity to capture CO2. Finally, there's a significant monetary value to preserving natural resources because of the tourism that is provided. Many people will travel to see unique animals and ecosystems to hike in these areas. There's a lot of really good opportunities. Destroying wetlands for the profit of developers means losing all of these crucial ecosystem services that wetlands currently give to us. That represents real monetary losses and real losses to quality of life, the health of the planet that we live on, and the safety of our homes and society. Not to mention, we, ch we should just respect life on the planet. We've already developed so much of this country into highways and Walmart parking lots. Why can't we just have a couple of places that are pristine and actually allow wildlife to live there? Not everything has to be about money. Now, I want to talk about how wetlands are going to be affected by Sackett v. EPA, this new Supreme Court ruling. And before I get into all of the legal jargon and that later in this episode, I just want to make a point quickly that basically they ruled wetlands have to be directly connected to something like a river or a lake or an ocean or a major body of water like that that is continuously full, continuously flowing. So areas of wetlands that are not directly connected or are only connected during parts of the year or things like that, they just don't get protections anymore. And this represents up to 60 million acres that will no longer have protections or 63% of wetlands nationally. And there are a lot of different types of wetlands and some of them are just not directly connected to permanently flowing sources of water, but still have some kind of way that a large amount of water comes into them, at least during certain parts of the year. This includes a couple of different types, which I'll go over. The first is non-tidal marshes, which can sometimes dry out completely, and they're near the ocean, but they're not directly connected to it, but during times where there are large surges of water or changes in the tides, then the water comes in and fills it up. And then it does serve as temporary habitat for wildlife and plant growth and things like that. Swamps are another type of wetland that are threatened. They're characterized by saturated soils during the growing season and standing water during certain times of the year but not necessarily a permanent amount of water always being there or being over the entire swamp. Bogs are another category of wetlands that are at risk, and there's kind of a subcategory of bog called apocosin, which periodically become very dry in the spring or summer, but then will become saturated during other parts of the year. And another type is 
a fen, which receive nutrients from sources other than precipitation, and this is usually some kind of upslope source through drainage from surrounding mineral soils and groundwater movement. And so they're not really connected to a big source of water like the Supreme Court mentioned, like a river or a lake, but they still become inundated every so often because of groundwater entering the system. All of those categories of wetlands, as well as ephemeral streams, which means streams that only flow during parts of the year, could be at significant risk. And this means 60 million acres of land about the size of the state of New York or Georgia could be at risk of just having all of the natural elements of it destroyed and developed. And between 1.2 and 4.9 million miles of ephemeral streams could be at risk. And while they don't have water in them the entire year, they still serve very important parts of different ecosystems. They form generally during floods, like during spring runoff and rain, and they serve as important nurseries and habitats for animals because they're connected to major waterways for parts of the year and they are out of the main flow, they're a lot safer, they're spots for, for larval fish to hide, things like that. This ruling comes on top of the fact that wetlands are already imperiled in this country. The industrialization and colonialization of the United States has caused the destruction and conversion of major swaths of wetlands to more industrial uses. In the 1600s, there were over 220 million acres of wetlands in the lower 48 United States alone. Now, over half of these original wetlands have been drained or converted, according to the EPA. According to an EPA study in 2001, nearly 75% of remaining wetlands were privately owned which means that many of these areas could be at major risk of development without protections if they're not directly government-owned land. Because now, these areas are not qualifying for federal protections because of the Supreme Court just rewriting the law. The EPA also found in 2001 that the largest drivers of wetland lost are development, like housing, and agriculture. Other major causes of wetland loss or degradation are drainage, dredging, deposition of fill material, diking and damming, tilling for crop production, levees, logging, mining, construction, runoff, air and water pollutants, releasing toxic chemicals, introducing non-native species, grazing by domestic animals, and other natural threats like erosion of soil, sea level rise, drought, hurricanes, and other storms and other issues. Alright, now that we've had fun actually getting to talk about science, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the podcast, talking about how legal technicalities control our lives. The Clean Water Act was written in 1973, and lawyers have pretty much not stopped arguing about it ever since. But there have been some precedents that have been set. Essentially, the Clean Water Act gives federal authority over major bodies of water in the United States. And there's been a lot of arguments over exactly what that means, whether it's just water that runs between states, or water that's important for commerce, or what does that really even mean. But 
the government is able to regulate a couple of different things, and this includes people still being able to discharge certain amounts of pollutants into waters, but they have to receive permits under Section 404 of the Clean Water Act, where they're showing that the level of discharges that they're releasing are small enough that it won't have a significant impact on the waters it's releasing into. Now, I mentioned the Rapinos v. U.S. case earlier that happened in the 2000s, and this has been a big point of precedent for law in the United States, but it's also been very shaky because it was a 4-4-1 to to decision, but since then, justices and courts have relied on the opinion that was written by Justice Kennedy, and this opinion asserted that the government has the authority over navigable water and waterways that are connected by a significant nexus. And that term, significant nexus, has been really important in guiding what is considered protected by federal law. Again, hooray, legal technicalities, so cool. But in this case, this extends protections to areas that are not just major rivers or lakes or oceans, but also ones that might be connected by groundwater or during certain parts of the year have connections, or there might be somewhat of a complicated connection where it's not literally physically right next to it, but water still goes from one system to the other, and that all falls under the definition of significant nexus. The dissenting opinion in Rapinos v. U.S. was that the United States government should just be able to regulate navigable water, arguing that the U.S. government only has the right to waters that are trade routes. So then 2023 rolls around, and the Supreme Court decides that they want to depart from what has been practiced for the last 20 or so years since Rapinos, and they want to actually go with what was the dissenting opinion in Rapinos. The majority opinion was signed on to by Justices Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett. And we'll get into this more later, but Thomas and Alito are both known to be compromised by billionaire donors who have a very big interest in real estate and development. So that already skews the vote in a pretty terrible and corrupt way. Not to mention that the Supreme Court is an entirely unelected body in the first place. The majority opinion in Sackett ruled that the Clean Water Act only applies to streams, oceans, rivers, and lakes, and adjacent wetlands that are indistinguishable from those bodies of water due to a continuous surface connection, and this is straight from the ruling. The dissenting opinion, on the other hand, was joined by Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Jackson. Even the very conservative judge, Brett Kavanaugh, authored his own concurring opinion, saying that he disagreed with the majority opinion's continuous surface connection test because it, quote, departs from the statutory text from 45 years of consistent agency practice and from the court's own precedents. Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, the extremely conservative judge, even wrote that the majority opinion quote, had rewritten the Clean Water Act. Kavanaugh wrote that lands did not have to physically touch an adjacent waterway to constitute waters of the United States or something that could be federally protected. 
They can include wetlands that are separate, quote, separated from a covered water only by a man-made dike or barrier, natural river berm, beach dune, or the like. In his opinion, Justice Kavanaugh also wrote that eight different administrations had recognized these types of wetlands as being protected since 1977. And he has a point here. The majority opinion is clearly rewriting the Clean Water Act in such a drastic and massive way that an area this size of New York it could be at risk of being developed. And these are crucial for wildlife. These are crucial for clean water. These are just crucial ecosystems in general. And it's ridiculous that some of the most corrupt justices that have ever served on the Supreme Court get to have such a hand on this. It is known that both Clarence Thomas and Justice Alito have taken money from different donors, and that includes Harlan Crow, who is a major real estate developer who donates regularly to Clarence Thomas, Justice Alito, and other candidates for the United States Congress, but mostly Republican candidates. This includes buying properties from Clarence Thomas, sending Clarence Thomas's grandnephew to private school, and luxury, luxury trips, flights in private jets, and more, spanning over two decades, according to an investigation that was reported on by the Washington Post. And Harlan Crow is old money. He didn't even earn his own fortune. His dad, named Trammell Crow, was a Texas real estate tycoon and was ranked 26 on Forbes' list of wealthiest people in America in 1982. And I feel like the last name Crow is appropriate here because they are just trying to pick at the dying corpse that is our ecosystems and our planet. They have absolutely retained their fortune too because Harlan and his two brothers are majority owners of Crow Holdings Capital, which manages $30 billion in real estate according to Forbes. The brothers also share a fortune worth at least $2.5 billion, but it's not clear how much of that is Harlan's alone. And it's important to bring up again that this case was brought to the Supreme Court by a private legal group who has a history of fighting against legal regulations that would benefit land developers or the wealthy. That's Pacific Legal Foundation, which has assets totaling over $70 million and brought in $26 million in 2023 in donations and contributions, according to their own website. Excuse me, that's 2022. Since Sackett v. EPA, since the Supreme Court ruling, the EPA has released updated rules for the agency that have to comply with the Supreme Court ruling. This means that 63% of wetlands in the United States could be affected, and somewhere between 1.2 and 4.9 million miles of ephemeral streams. We've talked about the importance of wetlands, but it's important to bring back into context what is at stake after this Supreme Court ruling. And this means that states will lose a massive amount of funding and support, which will drastically reduce their ability to protect these areas in the first place. And it also opens the doors for states to just strip their own protections and to encourage development of these wetland areas so that they can rake in more tax money from developers or just more political donations maybe from Harlan Crow. This could have devastating effects to clean water, not only removing areas that 
filter and clean water for us in significant ways, in significant amounts, but also introducing new sources of pollution that replace these areas. This could also lead to loss of flood protections, to more coastal erosion, and this would be devastating with the increases that we've seen in severity of storms, hurricanes, and other major weather events with climate change. Plus, there's just all the carbon that will be released when this plant life is destroyed. Plus, these areas can't take up CO2 anymore, which they do pretty well because of all the plant life right now. This would also have drastic effects on endangered species and wildlife in general. There are many, many species that rely on wetlands for their habitat as at least a part of their life cycle. And scientists estimate that up to half of species on Earth could go extinct by 2050 already. We can only make the problem worse and accelerate this rate of loss if we continue to get rid of crucial habitat-like ecosystems, which are so incredibly productive. We're already living through a mass extinction level event on par with that of the extinction of the dinosaurs with the rate of species loss that we see occurring today. And I know I don't want to see that accelerated, and I hope that other people feel that way too. Normally, at the end of the podcast, I like to talk about what's good news here, what's going on that feels good, what are people doing to try to make the situation better, but this is a developing story, so it's hard to see exactly what states will be able to do to rally protections, and it's hard to know how much states will get rid of their protections, things like that. But in this case, I honestly don't feel like there's a lot of good news to be had around this story. This is one of the most devastating rulings to environmental protections in a long time. I'd probably put it on par with the Supreme Court shutting down the Clean Power Plan by Obama, which was trying to regulate carbon emissions. And this, in some ways, is worse because it's not shutting down something that was being done by executive action, but it's sh shutting down 45 years of precedent and just opening up the door to destroying so many major ecosystems. This is such a serious backtrack on the progress that we've made as a society, and I am disheartened to see this, to be completely honest. But I think what is really important is that people know how serious this ruling is. This is an incredibly important news story. Water is life. Water is probably the most important resource that we have as a human society and as a planet. And when our water rights are under attack at this level, it's important that people are informed about it and that they can group together and hopefully do something so that they can form a coalition of people who say that they want to stand up for their rights and they want that to be a serious consideration of candidates who run for office or who are already there and that they care about it and that they care about their state and the people around them and their environment being healthy. There's also some good news because President Biden has actually come out against this ruling while he's had not the best track record on environment while he's been in office, I have to say that this is good that he at least opposes this. He might get a coalition going in Congress to try to rally protections to maybe write some new legislation, but I don't know how likely that is considering his track record on environmental disasters so far. Plus, with the Senate being basically controlled by Joe Manchin, who is a coal baron, 
and I'm sure this benefits him because coal is such a polluting industry and he will probably be able to get away with using this to, you know, make a little more money by just making the environment a little more disgusting and dangerous for everyone else. Plus, there are some things that you can do. Um, again, 75% of wetlands are privately owned, and so it's important that the public does participate in wetland management and protection. And according to the EPA, there are a number of things that you can do. And this includes to conserve and restore wetlands that might be on your property. You can support local wetland and watershed protection initiatives by donating materials, time, or money. You can work with or lobby your local municipalities and state to develop laws and ordinances that protect and restore wetlands. You can purchase federal duck stamps from your local post office that support wetland acquisition. You can also participate in the Clean Water Act Section 404 program and state regulatory programs by reviewing public notices that they publish and commenting on these applications. And these comments all have to be read and reviewed. They also all have to be responded to. So at the very least, you can make someone waste their time who probably is not on the side of wetlands. You can also encourage neighbors or developers in your area to protect wetlands that are in your local watershed. You can avoid wetland alteration or degradation during project construction. You can reduce the amount of fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides applied to your lawns and gardens. And you can just conserve water that you use every day so that more water is available to enter these wetlands, especially if you live in an area of drought. Look up wetlands protections in your state, stories on wetlands in your state and see if your state is actively adding or reducing protections. According to an investigation from Earth Justice, there are a number of states that have no to little protections for wetlands like Colorado, Kentucky, Missouri, Nebraska, Nevada, Oklahoma, and Texas. The same investigation found that there are some states with large areas of wetlands over 3 million acres, but have the least protective laws, and these are Alabama, Alaska, Delaware, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, South Carolina, South Dakota, or Texas. So if you heard your state, haul out your local representatives and bother them, tell them that you care about wetlands and that you want to see them protected, and you won't vote for them if they move to reduce protection for wetlands or support the development of them. Again, thank you so much for listening. Your support means so much to me. I'm trying to get this podcast started and off the ground. And even just getting these stories out there in the first place means so much to me and who I am. And if you want to help support the podcast a little bit more, you can help us on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash savinggreenpod. You, starting at a dollar a month, you can give a little bit of money to help support the pod, to help support me, myself. Um, I am dealing with some financial issues, not to super guilt my listeners, but, you know, any little bit definitely helps, um, and I definitely still just appreciate you listening and sharing this with your friends as well. Patreon listeners get access to episodes before I upload them onto Spotify and Apple Podcasts. They get exclusive content, um, can ask personal questions, you know, suggestions about what they might want to see for the show, stuff like that. 
and I want to give a, a big shout out to our patrons that are currently subscribed, and that is Nathan Frost, Blockbuster, and Nick RMSB. I appreciate you guys so much, and it really means so much to me. Thanks again for listening to the Saving Green Podcast, and stay tuned for new episodes coming soon.